step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Go ahead. I want to get into it, man, you know. Go ahead. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. General John Kelly was the latest in a line of staffers that were supposed to come in and discipline. Uh, President Trump gets some discipline in this White House, uh, but he has had a difficult week. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney. We're going to discuss that and more this week. Justin, how are you? Hey, as the late uh, Reverend Paul Jones used to saying, I won't complain. I have nothing to complain about right now. Um, I had a really good weekend again. Uh, a good sermon at Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church here in Atlanta with somebody you may be familiar with or maybe not. Uh, we had a guest uh, preacher named Harold Trulier, um yeah. came in to talk about mass car- incarceration. I believe he has a ministry called Healing uh, Communities. And it was a really good sermon that reminded us uh, how we should treat those who are incarcerated and also reminded us uh, how many of the saints uh, had been incarcerated. And so, uh, just something to keep in mind, but it started, it was a good start to the week, bro. Yeah. He was a former head of the, uh, Howard Diff school, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's really wonderful. My, my pastor's continuing to preach through Corinthians and, uh, man, a book has him fired up. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been, uh, it was another really, uh, incisive sermon yesterday. And he closed with a Dallas Willard quote. So, you know, you know, I, I was, I know you like that, but, uh, but uh, Justin, uh, uh, maybe, uh, uh, maybe you won't complain, but John Kelly's, uh, had some good days in the white house, but, uh, last week he, he had some weary days. You like that? And, uh, it, it's been, it's been pretty, pretty difficult for, for John Kelly and he's made things difficult on himself. Uh, we've had uh, what's really amplified this, uh, you know, he's a chief of staff and he's allowed uh, staffers to not just uh, continue remain in the white house, but thrive in the white house. Um, uh, Rob Porter, who full disclosure, um, I, I had several meetings with Rob Porter when he was at in Senator Hatch's uh, office. Uh, and so I, I know him. When I saw this story, I don't know him well. We haven't seen each other outside of work circumstances, but but uh, but I was I was definitely surprised. But uh, by by the news, I think everything that we've read about him having, you know, a relatively sterling reputation among colleagues was something that I picked up on even 
meeting with him for an hour or two. He was just a very impressive guy. So I, uh, when I read about John Kelly being impressed with Rob Porter defending his work ethic again with very limited uh, insight, but but um, uh, but again, Rob Rob is someone that I, I've I've seen work for a couple hours and been in meetings with. I can get that, uh, uh, but but this is I mean. From from a political perspective, bungled. From a from an ethical perspective, it's just uh, there's no excuse for it. Uh, and uh, and so this is the guy who was supposed to bring discipline to the White House, and in some ways he has. In other ways, we're seeing what uh, what happens when you put someone who hasn't been in a political job before uh, into. Uh, what many people call the second most important job in Washington, D.C., next to the president. So, uh, Justin, what do you make of uh, John Kelly's week, of John Kelly's tenure as chief of staff? And uh, do you think he has a future in in this White House? Good questions. Uh, I do think he has a future. Uh, as, as you pointed out, he's had some sleepless nights and some weary days, I'm sure, in this last week. But, uh, you know, again, he's the chief of staff. This is the guy who is supposed to control who and what the president sees and the decisions and, and what he makes decisions about. Uh, as we know, he started off as the secretary of Homeland Security in this administration. And then he replaced Reince Priebus, uh, who was only in the job as the chief of staff for 190 days. And as you pointed out, this is someone who's well respected. This is someone who we expect more discipline from and was actually supposed to bring discipline to the White House uh, is, is still seen today uh, by many um, uh, lawmakers as someone who is the grown up in the White House right now. And, you know, his resume uh, is long and we talked about it before. You know, he was a general in the Marines. He was the commander of the U.S. Southern Command under Obama, and he served this country for uh, almost 40 years. So he he. He has a, a resume there and some credentials. And I mentioned that um, I mentioned those accomplishments, not because it absolves him of anything that we're talking about today. That's not the point. But because I think we should be able to critique him and disagree with him without being disrespectful or dismissive of his credentials. And today, a lot of times it seems like once we want to criticize somebody, we have to tear every piece of them apart professionally, personally, spiritually and all that stuff. And this is really just a critique of the job he's doing without taking anything away from the credentials that he has. Uh, when we talk about the Rob Porter situation that you were going over, uh, it's problematic, very seriously. Uh, a lot of people have come out and say they were surprised that Rob Porter uh, recently had to resign based on allegations that he physically and emotionally abused two of his ex-wives and a former girlfriend. Uh, Rob Porter is a Harvard and Oxford graduate, and people were surprised to see this. But I don't think there are any any of those credentials stop people from being in these type of situations if the character and the self-control just isn't there. And to your point, the big question when it comes to General Kel Kelly is, did he act soon enough? Uh, did he do enough when he had the information? Now, if you ask Kelly and reports are saying that he says that he secured Porter's immediate resignation within 40 minutes of fully understanding the severity of the allegations. Um, this was based on, I guess, receiving uh, photographic evidence. But other people are saying, some people even within the White House, who who some folks are saying they want to take him out because he's taking control uh, from certain people, 
Um, they said he knew something earlier based on a, a uh, FBI background check check. And so he should have done something much earlier. One of the big issues, and I'll pass it right back, that people are talking about, though, is the security clearance uh, that even though this man couldn't really pass a background check, he still had he still was issued uh, a limited security clearance, even though it wasn't permanent. It still gave him access to a lot of things that people are feeling like he just wasn't fit uh, to, to, to have access to. Yeah. I mean, so in, in some ways, you know, his, his low key sort of profile, you know, in, in administration with a lot of flashier kind of personalities. Uh, and, and, you know, we certainly had some, some flashy personalities in, in, uh, in the Obama white house, but, uh, as a low key sort of nose to the uh, grindstone kind of reputation that uh, Rob had, uh, th- that's the uh, that's the role of staff secretary. You don't want a flashy staff secretary, and so in some ways you want someone responsible. You want someone who gets a wide range of issues, and so in some ways he was a he's a good fit for the job. What makes you not a good fit is if you don't have security clearance. I, I mean, staff secretary sounds like such a benign position it sounds it sounds uh i mean it sounds like staff secretary what, what people need to understand is is in many ways this is the gatekeeper to the president it, everyone who wants to get paper into the president goes through him the staff sec- secretary is the person ultimately responsible for the president's briefings and so all of the uh uh all of the paper that goes to the White House, whether it's confidential or not, is typically going to go through the staff secretary, which makes the security clearance issue uh, e- even more important than uh, than than uh, you know a position that that didn't have uh, such broad access to the president and to the materials he receives, uh, yeah. and and it's it's a real problem. And the other side of this is people were saying that maybe this puts him in a very vulnerable position. When you have these kind of issues going on around you and someone, let's say, from another country gets a hold of that, well, maybe they can put you in an awkward situation that would comp- that would force you to compromise your job. So those are some of the things that people were bringing up in relation to Porter and why this whole situation was problematic, especially uh, in regard to Kelly, who has been at working at such a high level, he should understand the risk and the problem with giving this kind of clearance to someone who who's in this position. Uh, the other thing we have to talk about with, with Kelly is the comments he made in regard to uh, quote unquote, lazy, lazy immigrants. Um, yeah. He was asked the question about the president's perspective on the DACA issue. We've been covering the DACA issue uh, quite a bit. And his response was this. He basically said, look, he was stunned that there are about 690,000 official DACA registrants, okay? And the president, he said the president came out and said, look, you know, there's an offer of 1.8 million uh, out there. And so he's saying for the people who actually didn't sign up, either they were afraid or they were too lazy to get off their behind. Now, he didn't use the word behind, but he was basically saying they were too lazy to actually, actually sign up. Uh, he was later asked again, and he doubled down on these comments. Uh, w- one thing I would like to say is hopefully those who have been following this show for a while have heard that we do try to be charitable uh, towards people and their statements, uh, but not not to a fault. 
right? Uh, not to the point where we're dismissing or candy coating bad behavior. And when it comes to General Kelly's uh, comments, I think they deserve to be called out uh, today because they lacked that charity that we're talking about. And it lacked that charity towards immigrants. Now, this is a really tough conversation. It's coming at a really tough moment uh, in this immigration debate. And uh, you would think that General Kelly would have an appreciation for that. And his comments just were not helpful um, in the way that they were expressed. Now, this is in no way to suggest that we should all speak in euphemism. Um, I can actually appreciate the kind of military bluntness and tough words at times. And maybe that comes from my, my football background. I know some of the hardest lessons that I had to learn couldn't have been uh, 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 spoken to me in a really uh, soft tone. Sometimes you just have to be real and blunt. But it, within this conversation, I think the comments were just wrong. Uh, they weren't constructive. And on a subject that really needs more thoughtful dialogue. And so someone who is known as uh, a, a kind of a disciplinarian, uh, um, I don't think this was a very disciplined comment. And, and hopefully uh, something like that wouldn't be said again, because it just adds, uh, uh, you know, it adds to the heat of an already very hot conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I, Dan Balls had a really wonderful uh, uh, article uh, in, in the Post about John Kelly. A, that I think was really balanced. I, I think he acknowledged uh, the discipline that Trump's uh, that uh, John Kelly's brought in some ways, uh, uh, but in the end, you know, Balls kind of concludes uh, that uh, Kelly's expression of confidence and self confidence, and I'm quoting now, uh, has again been called into the into question under an especially harsh spotlight. Uh, and that when Kelly sort of was uh, talking about how he didn't allow staff to pay attention to Twitter uh, uh, during the spat with Kim Jong-un, uh, when he said that, uh, you know, we know what we're doing, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that that's being called into question uh, again, acknowledging the fact that this is probably uh, one of the one of the top brightest military leaders that this country has had over the last uh, generation over the last two generations. Uh, and so we, we definitely want to, uh, acknowledge that. Uh, but the White House has, has been having a pretty, pretty difficult, uh, week after, you know, again, I think we said this on the podcast. The, the say the union was nothing like, uh, like, like many of us expected. And, uh, had, had they not been caught up in, uh, two government shutdowns uh, and uh, and some of this other uh, you know controversy. Uh, the follow up to the State of the Union could have been uh, quite a bit more than than what we've seen. But uh, do I do want to before we go to break? I do just want to circle back to to Rob Porter. Uh, I, I think I I I opened up by commenting on him through the lens of John Kelly. Uh, but anyone who's seen these, these pictures uh, and anyone, uh, anyone who's heard sort of the back and forth, uh, who's heard from, uh, uh, from Rob Porter's ex-wife, who, who's been in the press and has been writing and uh, explaining in the op-ed why, why she stayed 
um, just has to say uh, the, the the idea that there was any tolerance uh, for this one uh, that that uh, that John Kelly or anyone else could heard could have heard inklings if that's what they heard or heard uh, just you know uh, uh, mumblings that uh, Rob Porter was involved in domestic abuse and not followed up and decided to sort of put that on the shelf for a while. Um, it, it's, it's, people have the right to be outraged at this. They have the right to say um, that people serving in White House and serving in government ought to be held to a higher standard, not a lower standard. Just because Rob Porter or anyone else can do their job uh, doesn't mean that they get a, a free pass or get leniency when it comes to something this serious. And so I just wanted to circle back yeah. uh, to this. And, and it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it was, uh, it, it was shocking to see, to see photos like we, like we saw this week. And again, just have something like that associated, uh, associated with, with, our, with our country and, and with, with the White House. That's right. It's it's uh, unacceptable. If Kelly knew about it earlier than he's saying, then he should have done something earlier. Um, we saw um, Saturday morning, Kelly and Conway, a lot of the Trump administration folks were coming out in support of him on the Sunday morning shows. Uh, even Jay Johnson, a former Obama uh, Homeland Security uh, secretary, said Kelly should stay. Um, more so for practical reasons than moral reasons. So you're hearing you're hearing both sides. Some people saying he should stay. I don't think he's gone. We'll have to see. But certainly Porter had to go. And uh, I'm, I wish that decision was made earlier, but at least it was made. And hopefully they can move on from there. Yeah. You know, the, the last thing I'd, I'd point out is uh, th that, you know, this is an administration uh, that on the policy side, you know, some people have expressed concern that they aren't being as aggressive on domestic violence as as previous administrations. Uh, that uh, under the Obama administration, there was an ad an advisor on violence against women in the White House uh, that was responsible for coordinating a national strategy to make progress to prevent uh, domestic violence. Uh, and this administration uh, cut that position, does not have that position. Uh, and so, you know, there are different positions in different White Houses. I don't want to, I don't want uh, to, you know, say that because they cut this position, they don't care about domestic violence. Uh, but, uh, you know, you add that to the fact that you have a president who talks about uh, women often in demeaning ways. Uh, you have, uh, now you have one of the most senior officials having to resign over accusations for domestic violence uh and, and you know sometimes the policy and the personnel issues uh you know match up and, and i think i think people have an ability to uh and and the right to to point out those connections so uh with that we'll take a break when we get back we have so much more to discuss including the budget deal uh uh liz brunig's pretty interesting column on paid leave that we discussed last week uh, and then of course we'll talk about the olympics we'll be right back this episode of church politics is brought to you by eastlick coffee a coffee roasting company serving specialty coffees that are unique yet familiar complex and comforting featuring diverse origins that are delicious and approachable 
Use the code FORTH, that's F-O-R-T-H, to get 40% off your first bag of coffee by visiting eastlitcoffee.com. And we are back with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, uh, last week we saw uh, uh, a budget deal uh, get get passed after more drama, after another sort of brief government shutdown that was provoked by Senator Rand Paul. But now we have a uh, we we have a uh, a budget deal that kind of clears the decks, uh, as CNN reported, uh, for Congress to deal with major spending issues and doled out disaster relief money, uh, and we saw the debt ceiling hike, which was a major contention of Senator Rand Paul's uh, a filibuster. Uh, Justin, uh, does this deal make sense for the American people? What what was what was it you know really accomplished in your view? Given what's going on in that dynamic in Congress, uh, I think this deal does make sense. It's hard to see getting a better deal done than it than this. Uh, given the moment. And so that's not to say this is the best deal I've ever seen, but I uh, was glad they got some things done and they're not going to have to redo it, you know, two months down the line. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, Trump signed this on Friday uh, to avoid or actually to end a very brief shutdown that most people didn't know about because it was just a few hours. Uh, and this 600 page document actually raised spending by hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, a good portion of that spending uh, was about was military spending. Um, and there was about to, to your point, there was about $90 billion in disaster relief. And we know that we've had several different disasters from Puerto Rico, Texas, and all over. And so it's good to see those disasters dollars getting to where they need to go. I know that there were churches uh, that were advocating to get those dollars out. So congratulations to those churches who've been putting in work, trying to get these folks to do the right thing. And I hate that uh, people had to wait so long, but it's good. Those are finally flowing. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, Senator Rand Paul caused that brief shutdown by holding up the vote until three in the morning. Uh, and he was very serious. He was trying to make a point. I think one of his quotes was, you know, the reason I'm here tonight is to put people on the spot. Uh, he said, I want people to feel uncomfortable. I want them to have to answer to the people at home who say, how come you were against President Obama's deficits? Uh, and then uh, how come you are for the Republican deficit? So what we're seeing here is these deficit hawks are ta they're taking a lot of shots and are not really wanting to uh, allow this to go on without people feeling that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And I think the deficit does matter. Uh, so I get people trying to make the point that don't just keep race raising spending without matching it with some serious, you know, some other serious policy that helps us talk, talk about the deficit. Um, and it, and it was a, it was a, a, a close vote, you know, in the House, uh, 67 Republicans voted for it and 73 Democrats. So you see a situation where there were more Democrats in the House voting for it than than Republicans and Democrats voted for it, even though it didn't have DACA in there. And they wanted to have that conversation about DACA in that particular pot in that particular legislation. The other thing I would just bring up with is, uh, you know, today that Trump is releasing his budget request. And so that should be a uh, an interesting conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I do want to point point out, you, you know, um, the way this budget deal went down, I, I think is significant. Uh, 
the first is it shows again that Republicans uh, uh, are willing to spend money as long as it's their money. You know, if they if they have the reins, they'll they're willing. Raising the debt ceiling is is uh, is fine. Uh, uh, spending a bunch of uh, uh, spending hundreds of billions of additional dollars without the cuts is okay. Uh, we saw this under Bush. We saw this. Well, we've we've seen this before. So so this is just uh, in in that way. Uh, you know, this is just something coming up again that we've known for a long time that Republicans tend to care about the deficit, with some exceptions like Senator Rand Paul. Um, uh, Republicans tend to care about the deficit uh, when Democrats have control because it's an argument to use against uh, Democrats being able to pass budgets and that kind of thing. Uh, but if Republicans have control, th that money is is easier for them to spend. And then the second thing I'd point out, which I think might be new, is uh, we're seeing a Republican uh, party that even more than in the past is willing to concede uh, in favor of uh, budgetary goals. Uh, uh, and budgetary priorities of the Democrats, uh, but has become hardened around social issues, uh, particularly, you know, in this case, in immigration. So uh, Democrats uh, got the disaster relief money. Uh, there, there's billions of dollars in child care funding. That's a part of this. Ten billion in infrastructure. Uh, and, and yet no still no vote on DACA as a part of this. And, and so. Uh, you know, I think we're seeing uh, uh, a bit of a transformation in the Republican Party, not just policy wise and not just depending on who's in control, but uh, towards uh, a more socially focused Republican Party that's that's become a bit unmoored from uh, some of the conservative economic principles uh, that, that used to um, really be the driving force behind the party. And, you know, I think that there are definitely some upsides to that, but it's it's something to acknowledge and it's something to remember uh, the next time Democrats are in control and, and Paul Ryan's talking about uh, budget deficits again. Yeah, the inconsistency is definitely worth mentioning uh, because it really shows you that at certain times we're complicating the process when it's really not necessary. We're saying things that are a matter of, are a mat we're saying that certain things are a matter of principle when they're really just a matter of partisanship and who's making the policy recommendation, right? Yeah. Uh, and so those things need to be pointed out, and hopefully we can avoid those. I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Senator Paul, but I understand why he called that out. I think it's yeah. good that he called it out. If we're saying this is what we're about, if we got voted into office based on us being uh, caring about the deficit and not just you know blowing it out of proportion. I mean, blowing it, blowing the deficit up rather then we need right. to be about that. And so I, I can I think that was an honest, good faith uh, move that he made. And, and I get it. Uh, just like you, I wish the DACA, I wish DACA was in there. However, I'm still hopeful that maybe there can be an immigrant, a larger immigration agreement. All this kind of coincides with the immigration debate that's going to be going on in the Senate uh, today. Right. And so it, it should be interesting. Again, Trump is releasing a, uh, his budget request uh, on Monday. Um, there's supposed to be $23 billion in border security and immigration enforcement, and this includes the wall. 
Um, they're supposed to be spending cuts to the State Department and the Environmental Protection Agency. And so we know that'll give some people a pretty big headache. Uh, and then there were, there's supposed to be regu regulatory uh, cuts uh, that are supposed to um, catalyze about uh, $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending. It's important to point out that they're expecting most of that spending to come from the private sector and only about $200 uh, billion, I think, coming from uh, uh, the government. So we'll see how that works out. Something else to talk about in uh, the budget that the budget request that's being released today is uh, the $85 billion for veterans' medical care and the $17 billion that's for the opioid crisis. So there are definitely some things that we, those are definitely some things that need to be addressed. And so I'm glad we're doing that. But this all goes into a broader conversation and really seeing how they flesh out this budget and what the priorities of this or, uh, this administration are going to be when it comes to spending. Yeah, uh, it's... Uh... Justin, it, it, the flip side of this, right, is, you know, budget deals are perhaps the, in some ways, the clearest example of the fact that there are no perfect uh, uh, decisions in politics. Uh, and, it, you know, it's uh, uh, Republicans definitely gave up a bit on uh, quite a bit on spending priorities. Although you just noted, you know, they're still in control. So Democrats are, uh, as a minority party, Democrats are just going to take more hits regardless. And that's just the, the the process. But even with that, in order to pick up Democratic votes, uh, some Democratic priorities were met. But then Democrats voted for this and took hits from their left for allowing it to move forward with kind of a, a promise from Senator McConnell to take up immigration uh, as opposed to what some activists were, were urging, which was to use this budget deal as uh, the major leverage point to force a decision. Uh, and, and uh, you, you know, at, at one level, I just, uh, uh, everyone involved make, made some difficult decisions and, and there are ways that you could uh, uh, agree and disagree. I mean, I think it's really difficult when, uh, you know, when you have, elected officials that are using such heated rhetoric around DACA uh, and, and then kicking the can down the road. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can understand why that gets difficult for folks. Another perspective, uh, you know, when you're an elected official, you don't have the luxury of just focusing on the deficit or just focusing on immigration uh, you're responsible for a wide range of priorities. And at the end of the day, they, they, you know, the government's running. And so I think it's just helpful to look at a budget debate as uh, you, you can critique this, critique that. But if it was your vote, if you were responsible for uh, deciding whether, uh, you know, federal employees, many of whom probably live in your district, you know, will get their checks, their, their paychecks, uh, you know, how would you vote? Uh, and, and so uh, uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what what happens this this week with immigration. I think uh, I, I think Democrats will be absolved from the left of their party if a DACA deal gets done. Uh, I think they'll uh, the budget fight will be forgotten if a DACA deal doesn't get done. Uh, we could see some backlash within the within the party for uh, for Democratic leaders, particularly Senator Schumer. Uh, uh, deciding not to use uh, this as a as a major, uh, you know, as a as a as a Waterloo kind of moment.
Um, with, with that, let's let's take one more quick break, Justin, and we'll return uh, to talk about uh, the Olympics and and about Liz Brunick's column. We'll, we'll we'll be right back. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, did you get a chance to uh, uh, to watch the Olympics at all over the weekend? You catch opening ceremony or uh, any of the any of the events? I didn't actually catch the opening ceremony, but me and my oldest son uh, yesterday did catch a bit of the men's uh, 5,000 meter speed skating event. And so I am trying to, I am trying to catch a little bit more of it in the, in the coming days. You all might know that this is the 23rd winter Olympics. It's in Pyeongchang, uh, South Korea. I just looked at the, you know, we always got to check out who's winning in the medal race. And so I just looked at the medal race and the United States is presently in fourth place um, with uh, two golds, one silver, and one bronze. So we'll, let's hope we step it up a little bit more and get in that first spot where Germany uh, Germany is now in for- first place at the moment. Wow. Uh, something else I also want to check out, as you probably know, um, Nigeria has its first bobsled team. So hopefully I can check them out when they get a go. Yeah, that's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. I, uh, I, th- I thought the opening ceremonies were, were really uh beautiful uh i thought they told a really sweet story i mean similar to previous opening ceremonies i i i liked that uh the ability to to view things through the eyes of children was pretty cool and so i i think that's always a touching way to to go about it uh and then Justin, my wife loves the Olympics, and so you know I, I've been uh, we've been doing the snowboarding. We did the the downhill uh, skiing yesterday. Uh, I, I've you know these two weeks I gotta uh, you know buffet myself for uh, all the ice skating I gotta watch. Uh, although you know if <laughs> if you injected me with truth serum. Uh, I, I don't, I don't mind it all that much. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own there, bro. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, I, I'll tell you what I love. It, it kind of reminds me of college, uh, of March Madness, uh, in that, you know, you only have a limited, uh, you know, unless you're a diehard college basketball fan or diehard, you know, ice skating, whatever, uh, really America gets, you know, two weeks in March Madness is, you know, like a month uh, with these young people uh, and you really end up falling in love with some of them. So I learned that uh, this, I believe she's 17, uh, uh, Mame Baini, uh who's uh, a 17 year old uh, speed skater. She's actually from the uh, the town where we live, from Reston, Virginia. Uh, and if okay. anyone caught her uh, on the opening ceremonies during her interview, and then uh, the last that I, I saw, and, and I may have missed something, but she she got through uh, the heat, uh, through the first heat in her uh, speed skating match. And the, the girl is just a ball of sunshine. I mean, she just made me so happy. And I'd never heard of her before. And there are just so many young people that are doing incredible things and just have great personalities. Uh, and so that's what I love about the Olympics is you get these, you get to meet all of these amazing young people who have dedicated their, their lives to, to, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to sport, to, to expertise, to being able to be uh, really proficient in something. And this is their, their moment to shine. And, you know, we saw Adam Rapon uh, kill it last, 
uh, last night uh, in in the team skate. Uh, and so it's it's just uh, it's it's always a cool two weeks when the Olympics come around. I agree. The the Olympics always give you a chance to watch sports that you would otherwise never have an interest in. <laughs> I think almost every sport when it's the Olympics is is somewhat interesting, and that's a great opportunity because you know I'm not going to be watching the uh, the men speed skating any other time, but right, I, right. I find an interest in it because it's the, the Olympics and because it's such a big deal. So yeah, it, it's been great. I I want to catch more of it. Just had to have the chance, but hopefully when I get a chance to to sit down later, I'll catch some more, and and the U.S. can kind of come up in those standings something else that happened that was interesting was you know we know that again this is in Pyeongchang South Korea and during the open ceremony I didn't get to see it but I'm I'm guessing that you did uh, South Korea and North Korea walked together under a reunification flag Um, and this flag apparently shows a united Korean peninsula now Many people were praising this. I think uh, a lot of people were saying, well, this is great. We want to see unity. We want to see people come together and we get that. But I heard that some conservative groups in South Korea weren't happy at all. In fact, some of them were actually burning the uh, reunification flag, basically basically saying that it undermined them as the host country and kind of romanticized the situation and understanding that Kim Jong-un is not a very nice guy. There's not a good relationship. So why act like we have this great relationship uh, when that just simply isn't the truth? It, it, it's been, it's been weird, man. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I think that's the best thing I could say. I mean, the, uh, it's, it's, it's so odd when, oh, you know, when the evening news is on, uh, on some of these channels, uh, typically, uh, they're trying to drive up fear about North Korea and trying to uh, increase uh, a sense that the North Korean regime is, uh, uh, you know, dangerous. And then the Olympics come around and they're trying to get you to tune into sports and they're trying to get you to be happy about the Olympics. And, you know, in some cases we get pure, you know, uh, pure hagiography on uh uh, on North Korea and uh, what exactly it means that uh, that the Koreans have formed for one Olympic team and that uh, you know his uh, daughter-in-law or whoever is is uh, there at at the event. Uh, it, it's been uh, I think it's a uh, really good example of how market incentives uh, can drive uh, uh, some of our commercial. Uh, commercial media, uh, particularly, you know, the TV channels who are trying to get ratings. I mean, it's kind of a bummer, uh, of course, to talk about the North Korean regime, but um, but but to uh, kind of give them a, a PR coup is uh, is not something I'm looking for either. So I think there's been some good commentary. What'll be interesting is, you know, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see this evolve over the next two weeks. And so, you know, will NBC feel compelled to air, you know, in prime time, uh, a, you know, a 10 minute mini doc on exactly what the, the status is in uh, the, or the state of things are in, uh, in North Korea. Uh, And because the Olympics play out over such a time period, there's, there's a chance that pressure can build that, uh, that that uh, that we'll see some some reaccommodations to uh, and different approaches uh, than what we saw in the opening ceremony in these first few days. 
Yeah, a lot of conservative commentators were also commenting, and you mentioned it uh, briefly on Kim Jong-un's sister and the star treatment that she was given from a good portion of the American press. Yeah, it was his sister. And she was given the star treatment from a good portion of the American press. And they're like, come on, guys, let's let's not get into this, you know, uh, this starry eyed stuff. Let's focus on what's really going on. And I think I think we from what I could tell, we did go a little bit overboard in that regard. So hopefully we can find some middle ground where we're not making everything about politics. But at the same time, we're not romanticizing a very bad situation and some uh, pretty bad people as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, Justin, to close, I th- I think we we wanted to circle back on uh, paid family leave conversation. This is r- really important policy conversation, uh, and, and I think uh, what, what last week we wanted to acknowledge uh, and and lift up the the serious policy approach that uh, Senator Rubio was taking uh, uh, to try to find a way to get paid family leave done uh, in a way that could get the support of, uh, of his party that is in control of Congress. Uh, and uh, we wanted to lift up and still want to lift up efforts to get uh, advanced good policy uh, in a way uh, that can get done and that isn't just about posturing and about uh, sort of setting yourself apart from uh, your your colleagues and your peers. Uh, he he was uh, again just to recap the, uh, the 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 basics of Rubio's proposal is uh, that uh, it would be a, uh, a cost neutral way of providing paid leave benefits uh, by uh, basically drawing from folks social social security accounts. So if you uh, if you uh, had to take care of a sick family member, if you're having a, a child, uh, we don't have a federal paid leave uh, uh, policy uh, that 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 is sufficient right now in this country. And Rubio said, "Well, as a cost-neutral way, let, let's let's take it off Social Security." I think probably in his mind, he's thinking Social Security needs reform, anyways. The age uh, the age limit. Uh, uh, hasn't hasn't been risen uh, hasn't uh, been increased in a very long time, and so uh, uh, so when you take advantage of paid leave, uh, you take six months of Social Security away. Liz Brunig writes a column in the Washington Post uh, that is critiquing the the, the basic uh, exchange that's happening here which is that those who choose to have kids have to give up their social security uh, or give up uh, six months of their social security just so they could uh, take care of their kids and be, be home with their kids for six months. And, and Liz's point is, is really that this is not a uh, parent's uh, family rearing is so fundamental to society that uh, those who uh, choose to raise, uh, uh, to have kids or raise kids, shouldn't have to society shouldn't force them to give up something on the back end just so that they could take care of their kids on the front end. Uh, and, and I thought Liz's column uh, on, on policy grounds is really worth, really worth considering. In other words, we could affirm that Rubio trying to get something practical uh, done and trying to sort out ways to get paid family leave uh, through, uh, through uh, Congress as it is currently uh, uh, situated. 
Uh, but Liz's pushback here, I think, is is uh, effective. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Senator Rubio tweeted out her op-ed and, and said that he appreciated, basically, he said he appreciated the sentiment, uh, but, but he's concerned about uh, getting something uh, done, and this is something that's feasible. And so th this is just a, a really good example for people to sit with of how two well-meaning people can uh, A, disagree really well, um, and, and B, uh, feel morally driven in different directions. <laughs> you know, uh, just, just I'll, I'll let you you cut in cut in there. Uh, but what did you think of Liz's column? And uh, and I, I I'm just really fascinated and want to leave our listeners with just the complexities of um, of this debate that we see all the time in politics, which is sort of principle versus uh, pragmatism. Yeah, well, Brunig is a, is a, a brilliant writer. This isn't the first time that we've talked about some of her work because she does such good work. Uh, I like the way that she started the conversation off where she talked about, look, in the ancient world, what they understood. And she even brought up uh, St. Augustine. I enjoy anytime someone brings up St. Augustine. But she said, look, in the ancient world, families were seen as a key to a functioning society and actually seen as kind of small societies within themselves. Uh, but she says today we're more focused on individuals. And I think you and I would both agree on that. She even went to go on to say that a lot of our pol policy is absurdly individualized. Mm. And then she kind of goes into this Rubio Ivanka plan, if you will, um, which, again, would would allow parents to, to to get money. But then it would come out of their Social Security. So they would get the money a little later, not upon uh, them turning the age that would make them eligible. Um, and so I think. The the policy, the ideal policy, I think I'm with her. I think our ideal policy would be very similar. I don't know that uh, Senator Rubio's ideal policy would be that far from where she is. Right. 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 But I'll say this. The, where I disagree with this article is saying that it's penalizing someone because mm. uh, you can't really penalize someone when you're talking about a voluntary program. Right. So no, no one's going to say you have to take this money and then you have to get your social security later, right? right, right. Um, this is giving people the opportunity to do it, knowing that they may get their social security six, you know, six weeks later or whatever, which, so also keep in mind, this isn't like, okay, you're going to get your social security like 10 years right, later right, or something right. like that, right? Um, the, the people would be, would know exactly how much time it's going to take for them to get it. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of a stretch. The other thing I would say is anytime when we're assessing policy, uh, we need to look at a few th few things. Where are we at now? And where we're at now, where the American people are at now, is you may take you may have a baby or something else, and if you take time off, you may get nothing. Right. That's that's where we're at now. Um, the other thing you have to look at are the opportunities, which I think goes to Rubio's point. We've got to get something done. And as great and as much as I like the policy that uh, she seems to suggest, that policy is not getting through uh, Congress anytime soon. Uh, I don't know that it's getting past the president's desk anytime soon. And so I don't know that she was necessarily dealing with reality. What I saw was this is I want a policy that's a little more robust. Um, and here's how we can do it. And this is why I don't like that policy. But to say it punishes people, she says the plan would penalize elder, the elderly for having kids. I think that's a little too far, although I get what she's saying. It just comes off somewhat as hyperbole because this is a voluntary thing and people would know 
uh, the delay that came with it. And it gives them an opportunity that they wouldn't have beforehand. Yeah. yeah uh, so not right. the perfect policy, but if you can get something like this passed, you're not going to get necessarily what, what Brunick is pushing at passed at this uh, day and time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, I, I think that's, that's right. My, my pushback would be, um, I it it's not an intentionally sort of punitive um uh policy like like you said these are benefits that don't currently exist that would be made available uh, but the 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 you know uh, plug in these uh economic incentives and disincentives and the cultural signal it uh, uh the cultural signal a signal it sends you know over the course of a generation and think of a, a government that is uh, sending the message that, well, if you want to, uh, if you want to spend, if you want to do what, you know, every industrialized nation around the, uh, around the world uh, uh, does, which is, you know, have time to uh, stay with your kids when they're first born uh, and not, you know, not, not lose your pay or lose your job while you're doing it. Um, uh, then, then you have to you have to work longer than your peers uh, in order to retire and receive your social social security benefits. Uh, I, I do think that there's there's a at the very least, uh, uh, you know, in addition to the six month time period and and the the practical penalties involved, that there's a cultural signal that that sends that you know, child rearing is just kind of a choice that people make. And if they're going to make that choice, they have to make some sacrifices. And instead of, you know, what Liz is, I think, trying to facilitate here, which is the idea that actually uh, uh, child rearing and families are the cornerstone of society and ought to be, uh, they they ought to be incentivized, not disincentivized. Uh, and, and so, you know, th this is one of those interesting things where, can we really call this a disincentive, though, because you don't you don't have to take it. And honestly, I think I think a lot of people would see it as an improvement from where we are. I think so. Clearly. Again, as I said yeah. before, I would my, my policy stance would be very similar right, to right, her. Right. But based on where we are now and the dynamics in Congress, I think this actually could put people in a better situation than they're in now. And I don't know that they would see it as a as a penalty because it's something that they could take on voluntarily and say, well, maybe I plan to work a little longer or it's worth it for me to do it or it's not right. worth it. Um, so I get where I get that. But I think it's just hard to say it's a, a penalty or putting people in a worse situation. Yeah, but I, I, I definitely right. hear you. I, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, let's say you have, you know, kids at what, you know, 32, 35, uh, younger. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to end up, t you know, take taking that. and you know, and then paying for it, you know, 30, 40 years later when they reach, uh, when they hit retirement, uh, retirement age. And so it's, uh, I'm in a great, you know, if, if the choice was between this Rubio, this Rubio plan and the status quo, and there was a vote, uh, I think I'd, you know, knowing what I know about the plan, I think I'd probably vote for it and be, be proud of that vote. I think, I think Liz, and, you know, I think, uh, I think Liz is right to to uh, say, is this really the deal we have to make? We we just we just passed a budget that you know has yeah. hundreds of billions dollars, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of additional military spending 
And yet we're telling individual families that if they want to stay home with their kids, they got to give up six months of social security. Yeah. Uh, and I think always pushing on those frameworks it, is, yeah. a, is a good thing. We can think of this too. So let's say you're a congressman and you vote for it. And then the midterms come up and you get a challenge from the left saying Michael Ware uh, penalized right, right. people with family. Right, right, right. Right. I mean, that's basically what's being suggested here. So if you voted for it, I mean, this uh, an article like this could almost make a, a, a Democrat or someone else not want to necessarily vote for it because you could get attacked from that angle. And I'm just if you voted for it, I don't think that would be a fair attack yeah. uh, because I, I don't necessarily think it's a penalty, nor is anyone voting for this thinking that they're punishing mm. family. And so that that's yeah, where yeah, I'm yeah. coming. And that's why I feel like it's somewhat hyperbole, because that's not why people would vote for it. And that's not the point of what Rubio and Ivanka or whoever else are, is, are trying right. to accomplish. That's right. So that's, that's yeah, where that, I'm coming. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, uh, ho hopefully that conversation is, is helpful, uh, helpful to, to, to listener. I, I mean, it's, uh, again, and so many people are getting interested in politics and getting motivated by issues, it can get really easy to to sometimes you know ha have the point of view that uh, well I really care about this issue and I think this thing and so therefore if you don't think this thing you don't care about the issue and uh, you know th that's not the way things work in politics. I think Liz Brunig and Ivanka Trump and Marco Rubio all care about uh, uh, helping families out. Uh, and uh, helping to uh, helping to give parents uh, greater ability to spend time with their kids, uh, and the, the the policy means of going about it are just going to be different, and we need to debate those. Uh, but things are just so much more complex than uh, than the fundraising emails that get sent out. So, uh, with, with that, Justin, do you have any final words? Anything you're looking forward to this week? Man, I am just in frontline discipleship mode. Uh, we have a frontline discipleship tour for the and campaign coming up. Our launch is on February 23rd here in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you are in Atlanta, Georgia, join us at Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church. Uh, our keynote speaker will, will be Dr. Uh, Tony Evans, and we will have some of the uh, best and brightest rising faith leaders that are going to be speaking before him and just really touching on why Christians should be at the front lines of the most serious conversation. So for the next two weeks, I'm just in that mode trying to get ready for that event. That's going to be amazing. Folks, if you're in Atlanta, be sure to check that out. I am uh, just, I'm heading home to, I'm driving to Buffalo this weekend for uh, a cousin's wedding. And so, uh, you know, hopefully the, the roads uh, do, do me some favors and, and uh, uh, we don't have too much too much ice going on. But I'm, I'm always happy, as you know, to be back in Buffalo. They're probably uh, still celebrating the Bills getting into the playoffs. And so I'll, I'll just I'll just tag <laughs> on to one of those, one of those parties. <laughs> All right, folks, this is the church. Hey, be safe, <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I won't be jumping through tables or nothing. <laughs> this is the church politics podcast we'll be back with you next week until then be blessed for the activists and graduates i'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment in the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants it's like can anything good come out of nazareth the only thing good came out of nazareth this is the groove tell me can yeah. i'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves i'm brave i'm unchained i'm frederick douglas with a fade 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.